Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Let me begin by reading from uh, Genesis 1. I'll read the rest of Genesis 1 and uh, the first three verses of Genesis 2, which is the record of the first Sabbath. Beginning verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he has made, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us through your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace of our existence, for the gift of life. We thank you for the particular way you've shaped each of our lives. We pray that you would bless us, keep us, give us attentive hearts as we study your word together. Help us to glean all that we can from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the third lecture is man, and I want to focus initially on what it means for man to be made as the image of God. Frequently in the history of the church, the image of God has been located in some intellectual or spiritual or moral capacity that human beings have. The image of God means that human beings have the capacity to reason. Uh, The image of God means that human beings have, uh, are created in righteousness, holiness, they're created upright and they have moral we have a moral nature. Uh, Or the image of God might be some kind of, uh, the fact that we have a soul. Uh, And each of those things, it's certainly, uh, each of those things is stamped with the distinctiveness of human beings. I pointed out at the end of the last session that other creatures also have souls, but the human soul is different. Uh, The human soul has a capaciousness that animal souls do not. And we have abilities and capacities that animals do not have. Uh, But the way that the Bible 
locates the distinction between animals and man is by talking about man as the image of God. Uh, and the image of God is not, I, I think, in, in a biblical perspective, primarily something inside us. It's not some intellectual or spiritual or moral capacity, but it's rather, the, it's rather what we are as embodied physical beings. As I mentioned in earlier this morning, the word image that's used here in Genesis 1 is the very same word that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe graven images, to describe images of idols. And that's relevant because what Genesis 1 is depicting is the formation of a, a cosmic house for God and the placing of an image in that house. What's happening in Genesis 1 is replicated every time an ancient king uh, builds a temple for his God. He would build the house, he'd fill the house with the furnishings of the temple, put an altar in there, he'd put various tables in there. At the climax of the temple building event, the king would have, there'd be a procession, the priests would take the image of the God, and the image of the God would be, uh, would be carried into the house, placed on his pedestal, and then the God is in the house. Uh, they might have some ritual that would kind of enliven the image. They didn't believe that the image is identical to the God, but rather the image is somehow uh, a place where the God is present, a, a location where the God can be accessed. But the placing of the image as a physical object inside the house is the climax of the temple building process. And that's what God is doing here uh, in Genesis 1. Uh, he's not, uh, it's not a human being building a house for God, but God building a house for himself. Uh, we, can, we can see that if we look at other, uh, at temple building events in the rest of the Bible. If you look at, for example, uh, Exodus 25 to 31, that's a part of Exodus that you might not have looked at very carefully because it's a description of the uh, furnishings and the, and the uh, structure of the tabernacle. Eyes glaze over easily in that section. But one thing that's pretty cool, oh, it's all pretty cool, but one thing that's really cool is the fact that it's divided up into seven speeches. God says, do this. God said to Moses, do this. God said to Moses, do this. Seven times. And the seventh one is, God said to Moses, keep the Sabbath. So the, the formation of the tabernacle, the instructions at least for the formation of the tabernacle, are laid out in a creation, a seven speech creation sequence. So when Israel and Moses is building the tabernacle and furnishing the tabernacle, he forms the tabernacle, he fills the tabernacle with the furnishings, and then the Lord's glory comes to inhabit it. Uh, he ordains the priests as the image that, not there's no image inside the tabernacle, there's no statue or painting, but there is a living image, the priest, who goes in and out and serves in the, in the tabernacle. Now that's all de de described in Exodus as a creation event. We can See that back in Genesis 1, that that's what God is doing. The original temple is the cosmic temple. The original temple is this three-story house that he builds, heaven above, earth beneath, waters under the earth. He fills it with all its furnishings, and then at the climax, he puts his image in the house. Uh, his image is us. It's a living image. But the fact that we are embodied creatures is essential to what it means to be an image. It's physical. It's visible. It's tangible. It's something that represents God's authority and God's presence in the creation. That's 
what we are. So uh, the, uh, you can't, you can't uh, restrict the image of God to our various mental capacities or spiritual capacities. Those are part of what it means to be creatures of God, to mean the image of God. But the image of God actually places the accent our, on our bodies, our embodiedness. It's as bodily creatures that we're the image of God. You know, you've got, uh, think, think of uh, uh, you know, a wild, untamed world, an untamed wilderness. And the first man steps in the untamed wilderness and claims it as his own. That's what God is doing here. He claims it as his own, put the, put, the, uh, you know, put the flag, that's the word I'm looking for. He puts the flag in this untamed wilderness, claims it for England. This now belongs to England. That's what God is doing with placing man in the creation. He's claiming the world as his own. So it's uh, our bodies, all of, all of us, everything about us is uh, is a part and aspect of what it, it means to be the image of God. We're, in, we're an image and we're a likeness of God. The, image, the word image describes this kind of physical presence. Likeness means that there's a similarity. You can have an image that's not a likeness. If you have a statue that's get, that gets defaced, and somebody lops off the head of the statue, it's still an image of whoever it was an image of, but it's no longer a likeness. It doesn't look like him because it's been defaced. As Adam was created, he was an image, the physical representation of God in the world, and he also bore resemblance to God as the likeness, as a likeness to God. And so one way to think about what it means to be the image of God is to unpack that insight that man is made as the likeness of God. And we can ask, what is God like? If man is the image of God, who is the God? What kind of God is it of which he is the image? And we, can, we could use the entire Bible to unpack that because everything that the Bible tells us about God tells us something about ourselves. Those of you who know Calvin, I just paraphrased the first sentence of, this, of Calvin's Institutes. A knowledge of God and knowledge of the self, are, they correspond to one another. The more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves. The more we know about ourselves, the more we know about the grace and mercy of God. So we could, we could survey the whole Bible and say everything that we learn about the Bible is reflecting something about what it means to be the image, about God, something, something about what it means to be the image of God. But let's restrict ourselves to Genesis 1. Imagine you're on a desert island, you've never seen a Bible before, a jet flies overhead, and a scrap of paper flies down, floats down onto the desert island. It's Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. It's the creation account. And you want to know what this means. That's all you've got. So man is the image of God. That's who I am. Well, what is God like? What kind of God is this? We learned a lot about God. Some of it implicit, as I was talking about earlier today. Some of it very overt. Like the God who makes the world is a God who creates. If I'm an image of that God, then I too must be in some way a creative being. So within the limits of Genesis 1, I think that's one of the things that we're being told about uh, about uh, the image of God. It means to be creative. Theologians have recognized this for a long time. Human beings have some kind of creative capacities. But usually they want to reserve the idea of creation to God and say, God creates, we just make. We, we reorganize and reassemble things that already exist. We don't bring anything out of nothing. Now that's certainly true at one level. 
But there's complications. Complications on God's side. God does create light just by speaking it. But did he create plants out of nothing? Well, sort of. You can also say he created plants by giving earth power to create plants, to bring forth plants. He's using stuff that he made in order to make the creation. So he's using pre-existing stuff too. And there's a complication on our side also. God uses pre-existing stuff, so his creativity is not restricted to bringing things out of nothing. And on the other hand, although we're always using stuff that we receive from God, we do bring new things into the world. Things that didn't exist prior to our creating them. Virtually everything you see around you is of that sort. At the end of the creation week, this church, this church building did not exist. At the end of the creation week, no one had figured out that electricity existed or how to harness it so that we could have chandeliers. The pews you're sitting on, the microphone that I'm speaking into, I'm apparently being live streamed somewhere. None of that existed. And it's not simply that it's, it's, a, it's a mistake to minimize the novelty of what human beings make. Of course, it would be a mistake to exaggerate it and say that we, like God, can just speak things into existence. I think it's a, it is a, it's a mistake to minimize how creative we actually are. We're constantly generating things that did not exist before, whole new categories of things that didn't exist at the end of the creation week, that God didn't make directly. Combustion engines. Okay. That's an entire new category of reality, a new category of thing in the world that, ex that exists only because human beings brought into existence. It's not creation ex nihilo, because the first combustion engine, like all combustion engines, depends on stuff that God put into the world, partly so that it could be used to make combustion engines. Uh, it's, not, it's not completely ex nihilo, but it's not entirely unlike ex nihilo either. We are hugely creative beings, uh, constantly creating new things, constantly bringing new, st uh, new states, of, states of existence, constantly bring, bringing new conditions into, into reality. Uh, that's just the way, that's the way we're made. That's part of what it means to, to be the image of God. Uh, you might be thinking, ah, uh, yes, but... Uh, that bird you mentioned in the last lecture, he makes a nest. And the beaver makes a dam. And primates use various kinds of tools. Can't, can't fit his stubby finger into the hole in the anthill, so he finds a stick. He puts a stick into the hole in the anthill. He draws out the stick and then he can, do, I don't know, do the e-dance? No, I've, I've heard that primates use you know, sticks and things for tools to get to food. I don't know what they're exactly doing. Yeah. Animals create things too. Now that's true, and we shouldn't minimize that. God is a lavish <laughs> in sharing his power of creativity. He's not, he's not uh, stingy. He's lavish. He makes even the least creature uh, a creative being. Uh, our, our yard, like I imagine many Southern Guards is plagued by fire ants. Uh, and I, one of the joys of my life is to drive my riding mower over an emerging fire ant hill. 
But uh, I don't know if you've seen this. Some people have had the idea of pouring molten metal down into a fire ant hill and then exhuming the, uh, the results. Uh, other people have had the idea of pouring gasoline down a fire ant hill. That's not, <laughs> I don't recommend that. Well, these things are amazing. You know, ants that, you know, they're, they're horrible creatures, but they're tiny things, and they make these elaborate labyrinths under your yard. I, I don't have any idea how, how, how large those fire ant nests are. They go everywhere, and they're, they're amazingly creative. They're not, they're not creating it so that somebody can make a molten display of it. Uh, they're creating it for, you know, various practical reasons. Uh, but still, the creativity of animals is quite astonishing, even of the smallest kinds of animals. But still, human creativity is unique, not only in its expansiveness, but I think there's a particular way that uh, human, being, human, human creativity uh, surpasses any other kind of creativity in the universe uh, that makes it more godlike. And that's the fact that we make things that we utterly don't need. We make things not just to be useful. Not, we don't just make tools to stick it into the stump and pull out whatever bug we're trying to get to. If we made such a tool, we'd put a designer handle on it so it fits comfortably in the hand. So that not only is it useful for sticking into, into stumps you can pick something up, but it's also pleasurable. We don't kill a chicken, tear it with our hands, and eat the raw meat. Most of the time, we don't even just cook it. We season it. We make sauces. We add other things to it. We test different combinations of food. Do we need that? No. I mean, not to survive. Do we need that to be fully human? Yes. Do we need that to survive? Not at all. Now, you might find, ex uh, might find exceptions to this in the animal world. Uh, but primarily, animal creativity is uh, creativity that's uh, oriented to survival. Uh, they want shelter. They want they want food. They're they're looking for ways. They, you know, the the bird nest is necessary so they can lay eggs. The wasp nest is necessary. That, uh, so on. But we're constantly making things that are not necessary to our survival. We transcend merely survival. In other words, we we're cultural creators. We make things above and beyond our biological lives. Uh, and we can't live any other way if we're the image of God, because that's the way God makes. God's making is entirely and utterly gratuitous. Everything that he's made, all the infinitely complex, infinitely beautiful things that he's made, he does not need. He made them out of sheer delight and love for his own purposes. That's the kind of creativity that human beings have. All human creativity, not all human creativity is artistic in our narrow sense of the word, but all human creativity has an artistic kind of trajectory because it's, uh, it's pointed toward and it moves toward things that are designed to enhance life and to beautify life and not simply to keep us alive as biological machines or something. God's creative, we're creative, we are the image of God. We're creative in a godlike way. God speaks. That's the other thing. Back to the desert island. We've got the scrap of the scrap of the Old Testament. What is God like? Well, yes, God, God creates. And a couple of verses later, God speaks. He says something. 
If we're the image of God, then we too are created to be speakers. And again, you can bring up the same objection. Animals communicate. Animals communicate in elaborate ways. Um, uh, uh, scientists are constantly discovering new complexities in animal communication and uh, new capacities that can train animals to have. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's fully in keeping with what Genesis tells us about the nature of animals. But still, our speaking is something above and beyond. We are speakers who speak a royal word. We're given dominion over the earth. God speaks the world into existence from his heavenly throne, sending out his spirit and sending out his word from his heavenly throne. He commands the world into existence. And then he places a speaker in the world to have dominion and to have command through word over the creation. The naming that I talked about earlier, that's the first, first thing we actually see Adam doing is uh, naming the animals. It's part of the process of bringing the woman into creation, but it's into being, but he's naming the animals. Uh, he's uh, asserting a kind of authority over the world by his speech. That's one way that our speech resembles God. I think the other way is to pick up again the point I made about creativity. Uh, like our creativity, our speech is, uh, uh, it's, it's far beyond what we need in order to uh, maintain biological survival. You know, uh, what scholars call phatic speech, P-H-A-T-I-C, phatic speech. That's what happens when you sit down on an airplane and you sit down next to a stranger and you start talking about, I don't know, the stewardess, the magazines, the, the films, where you were last on a plane, complaining, usually complaining about aircraft, uh, air travel. Uh, that's phatic speech. It doesn't, it doesn't inform anybody. Uh, you're not going to get new information if you're, if you're talking about that. Maybe that can deepen and turn into something else. But phatic speech is just this kind of establishing a line of communication with another human being. Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's not necessary. Uh, I, I try to avoid on airplanes, that kind of speech, because I'm afraid it will turn into a deeper conversation and then I can't get my book read. So I get my book open as soon as I can before anybody sits beside me so that I don't have to, I don't have to enter into that. Uh, but that's, that's, a kind of, that's a kind of speech that uh, goes beyond mere biological survival. It's just making a connection with someone else. Or think of all the ways that you, you know, you come home from work and you sit down at the dinner table and everybody's got a story about what happened at school, what happened at the house that day, what happened at work. Do you need that? Not to survive. Do you need that to be human? Absolutely. Because that's the kind of speakers we are. We speak, we say things that don't need to be said. And we say things in ways that, that don't need to be said. We say things not only to be, to communicate, and not only to communicate so that we can get something that we need, but we say things in a way that brings delight. We want to say things in a way that's beautiful and moving. We are poets. Even if we're not poets, you are a poet. Every human being is a poet. Okay. If you ever tried to say the right word at the right time in order to 
impress or delight someone, that's an act of poetry. May not be good, <laughs> may be pretty bad poetry, but it's poetry. It's, it's speech, it's language use above and beyond communication that we need to simply to survive and to exist as biological entities. That too is a way that we image God, because God speaks that way. God is an eternal communion and conversation. God eternally speaks word. One third thing, and then I'll, uh, this is what I want to elaborate on in the few minutes that I have left. I mentioned this earlier, but uh, verse 26 of chapter one. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea. Let us. I said earlier that that points to, in a veiled way, it points to the reality of the Father, his word, and his spirit. The Father, his word, and his breath. The triune God that we worship. A God who can say us and I. A God who is one and three. And then he makes us in his image. And I think part of that, given, again, given the restrictions that we place on ourselves, looking for uh, what kind of God is it that creates us, and so we can figure out what kind of uh, God we're imaging. We're imaging a God who speaks us. A God who forms some kind of communion with himself. A God in whom there's a possibility and reality of speaker and at, at someone who addresses and someone who is addressed of speaker and hearer, as it were, in the one God. And we're made in the image of that God. And I think specifically we're made in the image of that God because we're made as male and female. I think the, uh, that's, that's where I want to elaborate this. In, in Genesis 2, we're moving into Genesis 2 briefly here at the end. God says it's not good for man to be alone. A shock. Last time we heard the word God pronouncing something good, it was very good. Everything is very good. But now, in the text at least, suddenly something shows up that's not good. And the thing that's not good, of course, is that the man is alone. What does it mean for the man not to be good? Good, I think, is uh, what, 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 what the, way, the way we should understand good in Genesis 1 is something is good when it, is, when it resembles God. Jesus says, the, the rich young ruler comes to him, good teacher, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus' first answer is, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. God is the standard of good. If God pronounces the world good, it's because the world in some way resembles him. If the world at the end of the creation week is very good, it in some way resembles him exceedingly. And if man, before woman is created, does, is not good, it's because man in, solid, uh, man in solitude is not godlike. He doesn't resemble God in the way that he should. It's not good for man to be alone because there's no us. Man can't say, let us. Let's see, starts losing his mind. He's, too, he's in the garden too long by himself and he starts talking in the plural, like, like a golem or something. He says, I. Well, he doesn't even say I until the, the woman shows up, which is interesting. We, we don't hear anything from him until the woman shows up. 
It's not good for the man to be alone because he's not a creature yet that can be in us. And God wants his image not only to be a solitary image in the world, but to be a creation creature that has the capacity to form a union and communion that resembles the union and communion of the triune God. Why did God do it this way? Why start out with Adam alone? If it's not good, why do it? Well, he's been doing that. God's been doing that the whole time. Every time God makes a new initiative, he starts out with something that is incomplete. The earth is formless and void and dark. Why start there? Because God is going to shape it and fill it and light it. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 5. No shrub of the field was in the earth. No plant of the field sprouted. For God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to cultivate it. All kinds of negative stuff in Genesis 2, 5. Why start there? Why not just put a man there right from the beginning? Why not make the, make the earth sprout and the plant of the field sprout right from the start? Because God is shaping the world over time. He's molding the world as he does it with the cosmos as a whole, with the land in Genesis 2, with humanity. He starts out with an incomplete state. The, the man by himself is an incomplete state. And so he makes a helper suitable for him. The first effort to find a helper is to search through the animals. Actually, this, this, we, we look back at this and say, obviously, he's not going to find a companion, suitable companion among the animals. Uh, and in yeah, one sense, that's obviously true. But think about this. Where did the animals come from? The ground. Where did Adam come from? The ground. In fact, his name means one who came from the ground. He's Adam because he was taken from the Adamah, the ground. He and the animals have a kinship because they both come from the ground. Adam's a living soul. Well, so are the animals. They're living souls. This looks pretty promising. They can find a companion, a helper suitable for him, among the animals, but he doesn't. Because the one who's going to be his companion has to be what uh, uh, the, uh, my Bible translates as suitable for him. The Hebrew word for suitable is a, uh, a Hebrew preposition along with the word that means something like opposite, like I'm sitting at a table opposite you. The preposition is like. So you put those two together, it's something like like opposite. It's kind of a paradoxical phrase. Animals are too like Adam. <laughs> they're from the ground, they're living souls. What he needs is somebody who's like and opposite to him. There needs to be differentiation. There's only can be an us, a deep us, if man is not just has another man with him. He needs another being like him that is also opposite to him. And Eve, the woman, is opposite in almost every way. Does she come from the ground? Not directly. She didn't come from the Adamah. She comes from the Adam. She comes from the man. Man and the animals kind of share this origin. Man and woman don't. You know, you know the old, the old uh, book title from 40 years ago? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Men are from the dirt. Women come from men. 
That's what Gen Genesis is giving us this, uh, uh, this picture of male and female, man and woman, that are radically different from each other and yet like each other, bone of bone and flesh of flesh, kin, both image of God, together the image of God. But she can only be a suitable companion if she's different from him, if she's made in a different way and becomes, comes to him as a different kind of creature. Let me, let me point out one last thing. Uh, I've been teaching for the last three or four months on Genesis 2, 18 through 25, so I have a lot to say about it that I can't get out today. But let me just point this out. Why start with Adam? Well, that's been God's track record. He starts with something incomplete and completes it. Starts with something incomplete and completes it. Starts with man incomplete and then completes him by bringing a woman. But then we also have to ask, why do it this way? Why not just form the woman from dust, breathe life into her nostrils, make her a living soul, and then bring her to Adam? Why doesn't he do that? Well, one answer to that, I think, is that what, what the Lord is doing here with Adam is something that resembles a sacrificial procedure. Think about what happens to Adam. He goes into deep sleep. Presumably, we're taking Genesis 1 and 2 just straightforwardly, this is the first time he slept. This, I think, is still day six. He's not slept yet. So he's been out, you know, has consciousness, and suddenly goes into this state loses consciousness, he can't see anything, it's dark again. Sleep, of course, is a, an obvious symbol of death. Adam goes into a kind of death state. And then, not only is he dead, in a kind of death, but God removes something from him. Hebrew word is tzelah. It's translated as rib. The word tzelah, never in the rest of the Bible does it mean rib. It means the side of a building. It means the side of a piece of furniture. It, in uh, in uh, the, the uh, temple construction text, it means a side chamber of the temple, a kind of adjoining room to the temple. That's the same word for rib. I don't think uh, the Lord just took one bone. I don't know how much. It's got flesh on it, apparently. It's got bones on it. It's a good, good slice. He, Adam is dismembered. He's asleep, and then he's dismembered, and then... The Lord takes that side from the man and builds, that's the verb, builds a woman from that side that he took from the man and then presents the woman to the man. He wakes up. Flush has been closed, but something happened over here. Kind of stiff and sore over here. And then there's this other creature that he's never seen before. He named all the animals. He's seen them all. He wakes up in a new world. This is, this is sacrifice. This is a process of sacrifice. The man goes into death, he's dismembered, and he's transfigured. And he's transfigured by the presence of the woman. He becomes a different kind of creature. An enhanced, glorified kind of creature when the woman is brought to him. Okay. I think that's the... That's the uh, force of the narrative here in Genesis 2. It's the experience that all guys have when they find the right woman. Right? You are a new person. Transformed. I've watched it. I knew, I've experienced it with myself. My, my wife. I've seen it with all our sons. Always worried. Are these guys going to make it? And then 
they, you know, they, they date somebody. I don't see that. I don't see that. Then they find the right woman, and everything's changed. And I think that the the, uh, the text actually points to that the woman is created. She's the glory of the man. Now the man is glorified by the presence of the woman. There's a capacity for a kind of us that didn't exist before. Now man is capable of the deepest kind of communion with another creature. And in the man and the woman, in the sexual differentiation and relation, there is an image of the differentiation and union and communion that exists within God. But the man is transformed. The man actually gives himself a new name in verse 23. I'll stop with this. First words from a human mouth that are recorded. A bit of poetry. First words from a human mouth includes a pun. It's just inherent. You might want to escape puns. You never will. It's part of our humanity. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Verse 23 starts, the man, Adam, said. But what he says introduces a new name for himself. The woman has come and I'm different. I have a new identity. I have a new state of being because the woman has come. A uh, bit of speculative stuff to, to close here. Uh, nobody quite knows the origins of either the word Isha, woman, or Ish, man. Uh, there is some uh, mystical Jewish speculation that suggests that both are taken from the Hebrew word for fire, which is Ish. That word isn't used here. But maybe, I want to say more than maybe, but I can only honestly say maybe. Maybe what's happening here is that the woman is the fire that lights up the ground man, the earth man, what Jim Jordan calls the dirt bag. He's made of dirt, and then suddenly he's ignited by the presence of the woman. He's glorified. That fits with the sacrificial procedure. If you have, you know, you got an animal that you kill, you dismember him, and then you want a fire. And the fire is the woman. And the fire transforms the man. And instead of being kind of a, a dead altar with nothing burning on it, he becomes lit up, ignited by the woman. So they too can become one flesh. So two flames can be joined as one flame. Because yeah, love is a fire. Uh, Johnny Cash said it. <laughs> Solomon said it first. Maybe not first, but Solomon said it too. Before Johnny Cash at least. Fire is the very flame of Yah. Love is an unquenchable flame of Yah. That's, what, that's what's happened to Adam. Uh, that's the way that man ultimately in Genesis 2 comes to image God. Now he is good because now man is male and female, man and woman. And as man and woman, man images the God who says us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you've spoken to us and created us and that you have revealed to us in your word who we are and how you've made us. We rejoice that you've made a world 
uh, of male and female, of man and woman. We rejoice that you've made us as you have made us. And you've made us with the capacity to join in union with one another and to have uh, a, uh, to resemble you in that. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, again give us grace to not only hear, not only study, but to delight and live out what you've revealed to us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.